Erin Marcus made a career change from being in a C-suite corporate role at an eight-figure company to becoming an entrepreneur. This episode, you will hear how to scale a business effectively, insights on how to have a meaningful conversation in your sales approach, and what to do to overcome the challenges you will face on your entrepreneurial journey. You don't know what the gift is when you're in the middle of it, right? It's only in looking back. And when we have our um, high school reunions, as we get up there, right? <laughs> it's been a hot minute as we, as we I, I don't know, we're on 35 or 40. Um, we didn't realize how lucky we were in certain ways. And my brother and I did a count once years ago, and we came up with the fact that I went to grammar school and high school with people from 22 different countries, from 22 different countries. And kids don't stand on ceremonies. When you want to play together, you just figure out how, right? And so I grew up with most people who didn't speak English, with nationalities I had never heard of until I met the people who were there, right? And you just learn that people are people and you just learn how to communicate with anybody and how easy it actually is to communicate with anybody because we didn't have Google Translate back in the day, right? So we had to have conversations and figure out through, um, not official sign language, but body movements and coloring and drawing and all the other things. How do you have a conversation with somebody? And then at the same time, I think because nobody had any money. Nobody had any money. So there weren't, well, two people had money. And now they make fun of themselves as being the only two people in the school that had money. But because everybody was kind of in the same boat where you were just trying to take care of basic needs, there was no cliques. There was no groups of people who were better than other groups of people. And at the time, yeah, a lot of it felt like a struggle. My senior year of high school, when I was 17 and 18 years old, I actually only went to school until noon. I worked 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week as a kid. Um, so in the, at the time, you might not think of it as so great. But looking back, it's such a gift to learn how to be comfortable in any situation, how to talk to everybody, to learn that people are just people no matter where they come from, no matter what they think, no matter how they feel, no matter how they grew up. All the differences, differences, differences really aren't. And then the second part of where I got lucky kind of in that same vein is I have a degree in journalism. Right. And I worked for a, I worked for several daily papers while I was in college, which meant I was interviewing people. And I got to interview some important people because they always did that for the school, right? They were very gracious and gave time. I wasn't, I went to school in central Illinois, so it wasn't as crazy as Chicago, but it was a little quieter. So I got to meet these really big name people and ask them questions and they would answer me. And this was again, before social media, before the pervasiveness of these situations. And once again, you learn people are just people. Hmm. And I think it just really taught me how to ask questions, taught me how to see what people are saying, what they're not saying, interpret 
meaning versus what people are saying. And it's just served me very well. Yeah. And these are skills that you were kind of building over time while you were growing yeah. up and while you were at college. So for you coming out of college, what did that look like? You know, you said you were working at a number of papers over the course of college. Yeah, so you I come out and jump straight into a No, you know, I a went paper? nowhere near it. <laughs> nowhere near it. The problem that I had is well, there was two problems with pursuing that career that I felt at the time. Um, number one, I grew up in Chicago. I went to school in central Illinois. I was done being in what felt like a very small town to me. And I was done having zero money. And I learned to really be a journalist in Chicago. You don't get to start in that market, right? Like you don't come out of school and start at a tier one market. That's not how that business works. So I was going to have to continue being in school. And I had been accepted for master's programs. And I'm like, I need a job. I need a job that makes me money. And the other thing that was happening at the time was a rise in what I felt was very sensationalized journalism, where the plane would crash and the report, you know, the technology was catching up where you could be on site in ways that weren't previously available. And so the plane would crash in the field and the reporter was expected to walk up to the victims. Oh my God, how do you feel? And that just didn't sit well with me. That was yeah. not how I felt I wanted to be involved. And so when you take those two situations, I wanted to get back into a much more bigger, larger, more diverse, more exciting environment. And I wanted to make some money. And I didn't really like what was in front of me in terms of that degree. So I didn't do that. I, um, that being said, I think picking journalism as a degree really helped because it taught me how to communicate with intent. Yeah, I've learned how to communicate with intent and that being able to not just articulate what I'm thinking, but put it in writing as well is something that has served me regardless of what I've chosen to do. Yeah. And so when you jumped into the uh, the corporate world of money and sunshine, what was it <laughs> yeah. that you were doing? And, you know, how are you using these skills to kind of climb up the ranks, as it, as it were? All right. Well, it took a while. There's a few iterations there, right? So what did I do first? So this is really weird. And again, this is stuff you couldn't do now. My mom, when I was a kid, my mom used to manage or was a leasing agent at large apartment buildings in downtown Chicago. So I've been working in that field since I was like 10 years old. So on weekends, before I had my own job, I would go with work, go to, my, to work with my mom and show apartments in these big high rises downtown. Like you would never do that now. Here, you're 10 years old, little girl, go show this 35 year old man that vacant apartment up on the 40th floor. Like you would not do that now and nothing ever happened. But again, you'd, you'd lose your children. <laughs> They'd be taken away yeah. if you did that now. Um, but I knew how to do that. I knew that world, right? I knew that world. So... I came out of college during one of those times when it wasn't great for getting jobs. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I always knew how to earn a living. So I literally just got a job based on, basically based on my mother's credentials and the fact that I used to show apartments when I was 10 years old. And I went into that world of large apartment complexes. I was out in the suburbs, not in the city. Like, and my brother is honestly still in that business. 
still in that business and the condo management. But that's how I got my first out of college job. Be- literally replying to an ad saying, well, I did this when I was 10 years old. Now that I'm in my 20s, I'm sure I could do this again. Yeah, I'd probably do it better now. Right, now I can actually speak to people, have some forethought. Absolutely. So that's what I ended up doing. I was like the first out-of-college career was in property management, multiple Uh, housing property management. And what did that look like for you? So you you get into property management now. It's not something that's new to you, but you're still learning things along the way. And from what I can understand is you got to a certain level or a certain point, you're like, right, this is just not for me. You know, whether you find it bo- Yeah, whether you find it boring <laughs> or just not exciting anymore, you know, those are two different conversations to be had, you know? I have no attention span. And one of the hard things about that is once I'm done or once I feel that I'm done learning how to do something, I don't like playing with it anymore. And so that's exactly what happened. I would stay at a property for a year. I would move to a bigger property. I'd move to a harder property. And that was all really interesting and really great. Why somebody would put me at 26 years old, still identify truthfully as the juvenile delinquent that I grew up as, And here I was, 26 years old, literally in charge of their multi-million dollar asset. But that's what, right? Like, really? This is what you're doing? But that's what I was. So I became a manager and I would move to different buildings. And I, the thing that I was good at, like the thing that I never did until into my mid-40s, I never knew what I wanted to be, quote unquote, and then set out to do it. What I was good at was realizing that if I wanted to eat and have a roof over my head, I had to earn a living. And if I wanted a life beyond that, I had to be good at what I was doing so that I would get a promotion and get the next job. And that's what I did, right? I'd learn what was going on. I would do a good job, have a good work ethic, right? Do a good job that would open the next door, that would open the next promotion, that would open the next job. And I just kept doing that. And what moved me out of residential property management was it got to the point where there wasn't really anything higher for me to do that I was interested in doing. The downside of that job became worse than the upside of it. Um, The way that I always described it is when you go to an office, you're dealing with people at work. When you manage apartment buildings, you're dealing with people at home Mm. and people are weird. (laughs) (laughs) We're all weird, right? Where you kind of put your better face on and go to the office, your polite society face, and you don't do that at home. (laughs) I was dealing with people when they were at home. And so it, it felt it started to feel like a very weird babysitting job. And I I became uninterested in it. But like I said, I did a good job. So it opened the next door and I moved into commercial real estate. So from residential, I was able to get a job in the marketing department of a commercial real estate company. Once again, did a good job, led to my next job, led to a promotion, led to getting to be involved in teams that were above my pay grade. Technically, somewhere in a file is a document that sold the Sears Tower, which for a very long time was the largest, tallest building in the world. And my name's on that team. 
Mm. I didn't do much. I can tell you <laughs> I was certainly I was like 27 by then, maybe 26. So I didn't do much, but I was technically on the team. So my name is on the paper somewhere in the file. Um, kept learning, kept doing a good job, kept learning, kept doing a job. And that, I think, is where the big shift came for me mm. as far as a career. Because up until then, I had jobs, right? I had jobs. I did a good job, you know, like I've said. But that job, when I was there, I met a woman whose husband had a small business. I think it was like a $4 million business. And I was on my way out. I was unhappy again. And she was a friend at that company who knew I was unhappy and... I would share that with her. I don't know what I want to do, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, you know what? You need to talk to my husband. And the fun part about that is this was the beginning of cell phones. I did not have one yet. Mm. She had more money than I did, so she already had a cell phone. And we were at a company outing, so we were at a racetrack, drinking champagne, betting on horses, <laughs> and she, her with her fancy cell phone, Oh my gosh, you need to talk to my husband. His company could really use someone like you. Mm. And once I met her husband, I realized that conversation was much more uncomfortable for him than it was for me because he's much more of an introvert. I tend to be perfectly fine talking to strangers. So, but that's where it really started. And they were in the financial services business. He was a, this is one of those businesses that if you're not in this world, it makes no sense whatsoever. But they were in financial services. They're considered a wholesale. They're a middleman between the people who sell a product and the people who create a product. Mm -hmm. And met them, loved them, really got along with them. And they hired me, and I ended up staying at that company for 12 years. Wow. And that, to me, was my career versus what I did before then which were more like jobs. Yeah. I mean, and now you're an entrepreneur, but one thing I want to ask you is because there's a lot of people out there like, you know, how you were. It's like, okay, I've climbed the ladder. Okay, this is boring. I don't want to play with it anymore. You know, I'm not learning. I'm not growing. But to stay somewhere for 12 years, you know, especially nowadays, the way people jump jobs every 12 months, 18 months, yeah. what was it that made you stay at this place for 12 years? Was it, you know, you can be honest if you would like to. Oh, yeah. Was it the salary? Was it the culture? Was it the people? Was it you were it just was stuck? Everything. Right. It okay. was everything. And so the one thing I laugh about is this whole idea of quiet quitting and the great resignation because I've left every single job as soon as I was unhappy there. Like, I didn't, I don't understand, and I guess, I don't know, part of me is the old person making fun, and part of me is all the empathy in the world, but why would you stay where you're miserable? You have one life. You have one life. You don't need a social movement with a label to tell you that if you are not happy, go do something else. Like, seriously, and that's across the board. It's in your, do the work that you need to do to make yourself the best version of yourself and then go find the thing that makes you happy, whether that's your health or your money or your relationships and especially your job. So that's what I did. And then when I landed at the insurance wholesaler, the difference was all of the above. The people were amazing. The money was good. The money was good. Money will only 
money doesn't last that long, right? You can't, yeah. you'll be mis being miserable even with the money, not way not worth it. Way, way, way not worth it. The money was good. The people were amazing. The difference was, looking back now, I was allowed to be an entrepreneur in their company. Right. I was allowed to do whatever I wanted. As long as I was involved in so much, and this is where I go back to, if you want to open doors for yourself, step up, do a good job. Step up, do a good job. Complaining, like, leave the minute, you know, if it's not resolved and you're unhappy, find a different path. But do a good job because that's what opens the next door. And so here I was at this company that was, had a very big growth mindset, right? Very much of a growth mindset, way on the leading edge of their niche and their industry. And I was given free reign to get as involved as I wanted. And again, step up, do a good job, doors open. And I, through, throughout the year, helped throughout the several years, we changed the way that entire industry is financed by renegotiating with insurance carriers, which sounds like it's unheard of. We created an account by account way of doing business instead of an individual by individual way of doing business that allowed us to go from something like $4 million to $56 million. And I went from being hired as a director of marketing to being the director of accounts to being senior vice president of business development where I was gifted ownership shares. Mm. Because I stepped up, I got involved, I did a good job, and I kind of, I guess, took the same approach that I do now for my clients. What's the problem they have and how can I help them solve it? Like, yeah. it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Yeah, no, most definitely. And I think there's something there where a lot of people think, right, I want to start my own thing, I want to run my own thing. And it's like, yeah, that comes with a lot of pressure. Oh. That comes with so much stress. You know, oh every bad word under the sun to do with <laughs> just making things hard for yourself. And yes. what you spoke about there is something that, you know, most people with an entrepreneurial spirit don't ever consider, which is intrapreneurship. Intrapreneur. Yeah. Where you grow and build. Yes, it's technically someone else's business, but it's even like you said, you got gifted, you know, ownership shares. Now that might not happen for everybody, but with entrepreneurship, you can get more skills, more understanding, yeah. a lot more freedom and knowledge to, you know, play around as it were, or learn without actually having to take the stress of, oh gosh, I've got to meet payroll at the end of the month for, oh dear, like I'm not gonna be able to pay the, for the premises. And when you're doing that whole entrepreneurship thing, if you have the right person, you know, when I say above you, you know, the person that owns a business or is that your, your direct report, they're going to see what you're doing and they're going to want to see you do more of that better. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. They're going to just empower you, you know, add fuel to the fire type thing. So for you, you kind of, you know, the cheat code would be to do what you did, which is jump to the top and, and know the person at the top. But once you got in there, there was still a team of people that you had to convince that you were, you know, worth their time. And I'm sure you were using your conversational skills, you know, the, the, the journalist inside you to just understand these people and what motivates them and what drives them. But as well as that, you're like, right, how do we scale this thing? You know, you've done a, a 10x growth there from 4 million to 40 plus million. You said 50 something million there. Right. And I, I'm wondering for you, oh, everything's dropping out of my pockets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering for you, what did that look like? As in day to day, year to year, month to month, 
you get in there, you're like, right, okay, things are all right here, but I can make them better. And how do you get that kind of thing moving that, you know, 12 years later, you're like, okay, I'm going to leave, but I've done so much here that I actually can help other people do this. So a couple things. The industry was financial services. And for all of you people who are listening and can't see me, I am a five foot tall girl. And I was immersed in, now I'm not a person of color, but I am a female and this was in the 90s. So I still had, right, we're still working on that. And it was a bunch of, and I, I say this jokingly and I used to tease them directly, a bunch of rich old white guys. Mm. And I'm Jewish also, which was an anomaly for them. Mm. So it's maneuvering. What did I learn going back to how we started this conversation? What did I learn as a kid, how do you interact with everybody without having a chip on your shoulder? How do you interact appropriately so that you're not offending people who are different than you just because they're different than you? Like we learn that as kids, which I, again, I now realize was a gift. I'm sure we were not perfect at it. I'm sure there's people who unfortunately did not feel that same way out of that same group, but I learned that people were just people. And so I was not intimidated by the wealthy, wealthy, wealthy people I was put in front of. But I also didn't have a chip on my shoulder about it. And I was, again, given so much leeway because I always delivered. And the other thing that I think is the big, big, big piece here is the personal responsibility piece. Because I am not a rule follower. I am not a process follower. <laughs> in, in, we laugh in my company. I'm the problem. <laughs> right? Like this, we know this. So there's actual procedures to contain me. Right? <laughs> so that I don't create bigger keep problems. Keep Erin away from daily processes. Give her a side task. Give her a coloring book. Keep her away from the business. Erin's not allowed to touch the calendar. Bad <laughs> things happen when Erin's in charge of the calendar. There's certain things I'm not allowed to do. They teach me. I, I also don't, um, I don't create the processes. It's my company and I don't create the processes. I'm not the one who has to do them. So why am I the one creating them? Let the, right? So, but anyway, I was allowed as long as I kept performing and kept stepping up and kept knowing when I should shut up and listen and learn and knowing when I should participate and help and volunteer like it and it's some stuff that is crazy simple again I'm going to age myself when we were trying to move this company from working one-on-one-on-one -on -one -on -one with people to accounts, one of the things that happened is we I literally, like some of this happens by accident and you have to be aware of what's an opportunity. What is an opportunity? Every time you're talking, remember I said communicate with intent. Every time you're talking to somebody else, there's an opportunity there to help, to do something more. And so we received an email that asked me a question. He asked me a question. And I said, I, I didn't know the answer. I told him I would find out. And then I went to the, the gentleman who was my boss, Tom, who I'd met. There's Tom Jr. and Tom Sr. So this was the middle level. And we were literally standing in the closet together <laughs> because that's where the network computer was. Mm. And what the email that I got, the question that he asked, he was asking for basically a report on activity. Mm. And here's Tom and I were standing in this closet going, 
Well, the information's in there. How do we get it out? Yeah. It's in there. All right. This was before, this is when I was still in corporate. So this was before YouTube. This is before Google. We used to go to classes to learn this stuff, right? So I'm like, I don't know, but I know there's, so I looked up, there used to be um, catalogs that would come out of local courses. Mm. So I literally went and took a course in a program called Access. Right. Right? Okay. <laughs> Who remembers access? That's what you needed. You needed That's access. That's what I needed. I needed access. It was very appropriately called program. And I learned how to run a simple report out of a network computer. Mm. And the rest, I just looked, I filled the blanks in manually. Mm. All right. Now, when we go to market, we do reporting. Mm. We can do reporting because now I know how to get a report out of this stupid computer. Mm-hmm. And now we're above, right? We're on the growth of, of, the, of the marketplace because no one else is doing that. Right. Because it's hard. Because it's hard. Because it's different. Because it's not the normal way for that business to have run. But how can we provide a better solution for our client? They need reports. Here's the thing. If one of your clients needs reports, I'll bet you more clients need reports. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's listening to those people that are, you know, your customers and giving mm-hmm. them the best service possible is what gets you, you know, long-term clients, higher paying clients, all that kind of stuff. But one thing I want to kind of ask you about is because you've said it a couple of times now, which is moving from person to person, business to accounts. What What is that difference? What is that kind of jump or transition like? Leveraging. Leveraging. And this is where what I do now and going back to what you said before, I couldn't do what I do now if I hadn't done the entrepreneur version of my world. Mm. So when you're growing a business, and this is exactly who I help in my business, when you're growing a business, there gets to be a point as a small business owner where you can't, you run out of days in the week, you run out of hours in the day, there's no more capacity. And you might hire somebody to duplicate what your efforts are. And that's certainly a way. And we do that. And that's great. But you get to the point where you need to leverage. You need to leverage your time. You need to leverage your money. You need to leverage your marketing efforts. And so when you're looking at a business that works one-on-one with people, is there a way to leverage your time? Is there? This is where people get stuck because in the small business entrepreneur world, This is called going from entrepreneur, solopreneur to business owner. Mm. And this is where it falls apart for people because they go into their business, especially in like the coaching and consulting world, they go into their business to do the thing the business does. Mm. Most people open their business to be able to do the thing. They fall in love with the thing. They love doing the thing. They're good at the thing. They want to go do the thing. But once you move into needing to grow a business, it takes you farther away from the thing, right? Mm -hmm. It takes you farther away from the thing that the business does. And you have to maneuver and learn how to tap into the thing you loved about your business without pigeonholing yourself into not being able to grow. And so that's what we did in that company. We moved from We moved to an account management system where we had rules of engagement with our different clients. We moved to a sales desk and a help desk effectively that people could call instead of one person, there was 30 of them. Mm. And they, right, it's leveraging. How do we leverage our team? How do we leverage our marketing? How do we leverage time so that the people at the top of the pyramid 
aren't doing the work that they could teach to somebody else, right, to fill the gap that we leave by stepping up to the next level. And it's hard. That's where a lot of people get stuck because those skills, and that was the amazing thing that I've been given is, so I got an MBA, I got my MBA while I was at that company. Mm. And I was brought into business planning and I was brought into really high-end strategic meetings. Yeah. And invited to participate, which taught me the business end of business. How does business work? Yeah. I feel like if you're the right kind of person, if you're right, wired the right kind of way, you look at what's going on, you know, at the upper levels of a business, the top of a, you know, there's people out there making thousands, there's people out there making millions, there's people make, out there making billions. But once you get up to a certain level, and I'd say that sweet spot is someone who's making, you know, above seven figures, you know, touching into eight figures, what they're doing to the right kind of person is really interesting. And you go, it's that simple. No it's way. It, okay. It, so for maybe the short term, you lose a bit of money, but in the end right. it becomes fantastic. So is that what inspired you is being invited into those rooms and realizing that your voice and your vision for oh, things yeah. mattered? Well, and that I had a skill, Right. you know, when, when the CEO, when the founder and the CEO, hmm. the president of a multiple million big fish company hmm. is telling me that I'm good, I'm smart, I have an impact, mm. right? We believe them. Yeah. We believe people when they tell us the crap, we believe them when they, right? And, and getting those wins and that experience being made to feel that I was worth being invested in mm -hmm. is, you know, again, it, it's kind of the second piece of this. If I would, if I would go back at how did I get here, right? Number one is that people are just people, talk to anybody, communicate with intent. Number two is do a good job, step up, do a good job, step up, be observant, be observant, be observant. Mm. And number three is whether I was a kid with a job, which then made me money, or whether I was a juvenile delinquent in bad situations that I walked away from, or getting promoted and recognized by my bosses, as well as peers, that taught me that I could trust myself. Mm -hmm. That taught me that I make good decisions, right? The confidence and trust that I have in my ability to be okay. Yeah. And this is what stops people. Because if you don't think, you know, our brain is one job, it's to keep us alive. It's not to make us happy and rich and fulfilled, it's to keep us alive. And mm -hmm. so it is a very negative bias. It thinks, that, it thinks that everything we haven't done before is we're all going to die. It's very black and white, right? We're either fine or we're going to end up, right, living in the van, by the river, under the bridge type of thing. And your brain is very, very black or white. And so you need to build that self-trust, that even if what I'm doing completely falls apart. Like I know that even in the hardest, hardest, hardest time of my current business, if it all falls apart, I can have a job in 24 hours. Yeah. I know that. So I'm willing to take a little bit of a bigger risk. I'm willing to make a bigger jump. I'm willing to make a bigger decision because I know I'm up against neuro, you know, neuroscience, but I have the experience to know 
through previous history that I'll be okay. And unfortunately, that's something that you only get from doing. You can't think your way to that situation, mm. right? You make a decision, you realize you survived, you make the next decision, you realize you're survived, and eventually your brain goes, okay, maybe she's got this. Yeah. Yeah. And what did that jump look like for you? So you're like, you've made it. You went from broke to C-suite, you know? <laughs> yep. For, for lack of a broke. better word, yeah. <laughs> back to broke but you know you made that jump and what was that jump what was it because i you, cried you, you... it was horrible <laughs> it was horrible it was so hard it was so here's what one of the things i've learned in all the years of coaching and, and consulting if you are running toward creating something mm -hmm. you stand a better chance at succeeding than if you are running away from something if you are quitting your job because you are pissed at your boss, I'm going to go do this on my own because I'm mad at the world and mad at authority. You are carrying that with you and it is not going to go well. If you are running towards creation instead of away from a perceived problem, big, big, big difference. And so what happened is I got into my late 30s and I started getting bored. I started getting bored because as the business got bigger, as we went from, there were seven people on my team when I'm, um, when I started, when I left that company, we had 70 employees. That's mm. a big difference, 10 times. Yeah. And so as the business gets bigger, your jobs get smaller. And my job had gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And I wasn't able to do that wide variety of things that was so interesting to me in the beginning. And then the other thing that happened you know, you, you hit certain ages in your life and you start to look at the world, right? Your worldview changes. And what happened was because I had such a street level upbringing, mm. it, I look at things very A to B, right? There's not a lot of convolution. It's like, this is the problem. This is a solution. It's very direct lines. And the business itself, the industry, not necessarily our company, but the industry started to feel very, the only word that I can come up with is contrived. Right. It started to feel very contrived, meaning layers of complexity were being added so that this person can make a nickel off of that person's dime. Mm. Right? Layers, of, and we see this in industry, it's pervasive now. Mm. How complicated could we make this so that out of every dollar, more people want a penny? Hmm. And so it was it was no fun anymore. The, the feeling of helping people, the feeling of making a difference was going away because now I was battling computers and layers of bureaucracy. And so I don't know if that was my midlife crisis or what that was, <laughs> but it just didn't feel the same. Right. It wasn't as interesting. Only the people were still amazing. Yeah. So I um, wandered back and forth in the hallway. The real funny version of the story is I was slightly intoxicated at my cousin's wedding, talking on the phone to my aunt who had found a franchise opportunity. She lived in Vegas at the time and wanted me to do this with her. And because I was recovering from strep throat, had drank too much, was on antibiotics and left the party early. I was in my hotel room on my laptop <laughs> Somehow that <laughs> concoction of things made you go, you know what? It's time to get out of here, get this franchise stuff going. What, what was the franchise? So the franchise was working with families with aging parents. Right. Okay. 
And the financial services industry that I came out of was long-term care insurance. So same market, Mm -hmm. different side of the problem, Mm -hmm. same market. So with my marketing brain, I thought, okay, well, I at least know the market and I know how to run a business. I was very, it was what I call a baby franchise, low barrier to entry. They weren't, they didn't really have their system together, which for me was good because it would let me get involved again, Mm. creating something, which is what I like to do. And so, um, I sent away for the information, uh, super secret between you and me, never told my aunt that I did it because I was not going to go to Vegas and do this with her. So hopefully at this point, I don't think she'll hear this podcast, but that we kept that a secret for six years. Um, because <laughs> I was not doing that. <laughs> and that's what I did. So I'm wandering the hallways in this office and telling my partner at my management level that I was incre- offering him an increasingly large amount of money to go tell our boss that I was leaving. Right. And because it was brutal. It was brutal because I loved these people. They were amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And I finally get up the nerve and I walk into his office and I sit down. We, you know, 12 years, right? It was very close with this person. And I said, here's the deal. I have something to tell you. I'm going to cry and you're just going to have to deal with it because, you know, crying at work is not like a thing that's recommended. Yeah, definitely not good for for morale. (laughs) Not good for everybody involved. And I gave him a heads up. I said, I'm going to cry. You're going to do it. And I'm not a big crier either. So this was as bad as for me as it was for him. And I said, this is the amazing gift that I was given. I said to him, I found an opportunity and I think I want to try this. And he said, "Okay, let me see. And he took, I had the folder, right? I went back in my office, I got the folder, I showed him the folder, and he, he called, he was technically the CEO of the company or president, I don't know. He called the lawyer, he called his son, he called his partner, and they stopped what they were doing. And we sat in the conference room, and he went through all of the paperwork, and he asked me, what are you going to do about this? And what are you going to do about that? And what are you, how are you going to handle this? And how, where's your money? How much reserves do you have? What are you going to, how would you handle this? And we did that for three hours. And he looked at me and he said, all right, you can do this. You can go do this. I mean, unheard of amazing gift, right? That level of support. Yeah. And... Captain took, right? I gave 90 days notice because I had a $3 million deal that I'd been working on for two years and I was not going to let them screw that up. Yeah, you wanted to see that one go over the line and leave that on one we're putting in a play. We are closing that situation before I left. Yeah. And so, so what I, was it like when you left after, you know, a, a three months of a, a very <sighs> slow goodbye? You, you kind of was like, right, one day you're terrifying. in this building. Really? Oh my God, it was so overwhelming. So my first breakdown, my first absolute breakdown was when the printer wouldn't print and I realized I didn't have anybody to call. That was the first meltdown. Yeah. (laughs) I would get lost. It was a geographic-based business in my neighborhood, in the neighborhood I grew up in, and I would get lost Mm. because I would use my GPS to go to the consultations I was having in people's houses, but it kind of knew where I was, so I would just not use my GPS to go home. But my mind was racing so much that all of a sudden I'd look up and I'd be like, why, why, why am I here? Where am I? Why did, why did I drive here? Where yeah. am I supposed to be? It was the, the, the too much information story that I'll share with you. <laughs> so 
we're all adults here, right? Girls take birth control pills. You take one a day. Yeah. I used to take mine when I brushed my teeth every morning. This way it was done every right every day like clockwork. No big deal. It's very easy to tell. Okay, over the years, you miss one. You miss another one. There was two different occasions in the first 60 days where I would go to take my pill and realize I had managed to take two. I was ahead. Like, how does that even happen? You brush your teeth twice in the morning somehow. <laughs> Who knows? So, so what did you do to overcome all this kind of, you know, confusion, panic, and, like, just problems you had going on? What did you do? You just keep moving. Right. You don't stop. You just, you don't learn this stuff by thinking about it. You learn it by doing it. Yeah. You focus on what you can control. The big thing for me was opening. Um, I'm very good at organizing things. Mm. And that was what I would do. I would organize. I would prioritize. I would just trying to assess what are needle moving activities versus not what's working versus not the difference for me. And the reason I was successful in that business. So I got my office to the top 10 out of 200 offices in about 18 months Mm. because I know how to run a business. Yeah. That's the difference. Right. When you go into your business because you love the thing, you don't necessarily know how to grow a business. I had been specifically taught how to grow a business. Yeah. Right. I wasn't in love. I very much liked the subject matter. I loved my clients. I loved my team. But what I really, really loved was the puzzle of growing a business. Yeah. And it it becomes very simple. Like I've had, you know, close to a hundred of these conversations with people just like yourself that have been to the top of the entrepreneurial ladder or the top of the corporate ladder. And it gets very, very kind of boring to hear it, but it's teams, processes, systems. Oh my God. If you have those three, you can't fail (laughs) because the team cares about what you're doing as long as they know the process and they put that process into the system, you know, you start printing yeah. money. <laughs> it, it, and I will be the first person to tell you, nobody was more shocked than I was to find me embracing processes. Yeah. Like, bad. I don't like to do anything three times, right? We've established this fact that I have no attention span. I don't like... So the, the lesson of learning that is processes what it takes... Mm. hard fought lesson Mm. hard fought lesson i do right i move too quickly so you know what you do you hire other people are really good at processes yeah and they do amazing work yeah and it's fun for everybody well you look at it and you go how is this person motivated by this thing in this business you know some people geek out on weird parts of the business that you don't even realize need that kind of you know attention things like hr like i speaking to someone last week she was talking to me about how you know hr is so important it only it doesn't only protect the company it protects the people and you know when when (laughs) hr your listeners are going what yeah i know it's crazy but the passion she had for it and i was like wow and she was like you know there's there's people out there that are doing wrong things but my job as the hr person is to make sure that both parties come away from this okay and i was like yeah i guess so i don't you know i mean i've never thought about it like this but you find people with the right passion they're going to grow yes. your business to a, a mad, mad level. And so, well, gone. And it's, it's not just, right? So what that speaks to is you have to find people that compliment you, not duplicate you. Yeah. And the biggest, biggest problem, I watch this over and over and over again. I've made the mistake myself. Let me lessen your learning curve. 
stop hiring people just to help you hire people to drive everything forward. Yeah. It's exhausting, you know, going back to talking about the challenge, moving from solopreneur entrepreneur into business owner. One of the bottlenecks is when you're a manager of everything. Yeah. If you, if everything in the business has to bump up against you, Mm. oh my gosh. You spend most of your day fighting fires. You don't actually spend any uh, of your day growing your business or, you know, doing the important part for a business owner, which is like sales, marketing, and to a degree, if you've already got existing clients, you know, for the high level clients, client negotiations or just client retention activities, you know, they say some of the biggest deals in the world are done on the golf course. You go, well, how's that working? It's like, because they're building that relationship. You know, right. they're working on the relationship rather than, you know, getting one started. Right. And finding and people, I think that's one of the things It's going to be interesting because every generation is different. We all figure it out. But that's one of the things that's not as pervasive as it used to be. Yeah. There's nothing that can happen in my life. Literally nothing. And, and I should knock on one because this is not an invitation for things <laughs> to start happening. Whether it's a health situation, a financial situation, a physical situation with this house, a situation in my business, Mm. there's nothing that could happen in my life that I don't have somebody I can call to help me. Yeah. If I needed a job tomorrow, I'd have it. Yeah. And that creates a foundation that you can take a risk from. Mm. Is that what keeps you motivated? even through the tough times is the, is the idea that I've always got this to fall back on, or is it the fact that you could always call someone to help fix that problem? It makes it safe for me to do, right? It makes it safe. What, what keeps me motivated is a few things. One, the puzzle of the business. Hmm. I, I'm just very driven. Um, this is where the mindset work. I want to be the exception. I want to be the 1%. Hmm. Not because I want to fly all over the world, like, because I want to just be able to freaking do it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I, want to, I want to prove to myself I can. Why can't I? Why do you climb a mountain? Because it's there, right? Like, I love this. I love this. And my brain can't not work this way, right? I can't not do it. I took my strength finders test. I've taken all, I'm nothing if not self-aware, right? I've taken all the tests and the things that pop up on the beginning is visionary, learner, strategic thinking. Like, I can't not do it. I'm really, really good at it. I know what I suck at. <laughs> like, yeah. this is not like arrogance because there's a longer list of what I'm bad at than there's a list of what I'm good at. Mm-hmm. But one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got was from a mentor once I entered the world of small businesses is find out, and I I screw up, he said it much more elegantly than I will, but find what you're amazing at and exploit it in service to others. Mm. Take what you're already great at and exploit it in service to others. And how do we find what we're amazing at? It's what comes easy. It's it's hard because it's usually what comes easy for you. Mm. So we devalue it. Right. So many people don't value what they're great at because it's just so easy for them. They, they interpret that as meaning it has no value when in truth it has more value. It is more value. And again, you can't think your way out of it and and mentors. Oh my God, mentors, right? 
where task cementers your, where do you find your <laughs> mentors and like are you part of like masterminds all that kind of stuff all of the above all of the above right so i have amazing mentors in corporate who you know when i was in still in my job for your listeners who are still in a job it's the people who ask for your input and listen to you right mm. the people who give you five seconds instead of one second they're not the people that fawn all over you by the way that's no help at all mm. that that does not help you there's no growth in that but if you have someone who you observe giving you half a second build the relationship mm. build the relationship it, it's energetic. I mean, at that point, it really is energetic. Where are you matching with people? We feel it. Yeah. We feel it, right? And when I'm out in there, and there's a big difference now, especially as a small business owner, mentors that I pay for. Mm. I now am at a point in my business where I won't really get involved in a lot of free masterminds. Yeah, because there's no value in it for you. Because if, if what I've realized is from talking to loads of people is that's great if you know, you're just starting out, it's free, everyone's mm -hmm. trying to totally. get that help. But when you're trying to go from, you know, seven figures to eight figures or eight figures to, you know, multiple eight, you know, what's after that? Oh gosh, let's say it's nine figures. I don't know, wherever it goes <laughs> right. from, seven, eight, nine, you know what I mean, billionaire status. Right. You need someone who's been there, done it, and their time is valuable. There's no way on earth they're giving it to you for free unless they've invested in your company and have a, totally. a big say in it. So totally. yeah, go and talk to me about the power of paid masterminds. Where do you even find them? Do you know what I mean? Oh, they're everywhere. Like, follow people. Follow the people who follow the people. Mm. Follow the people who follow the people. It takes some work. Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing. Gary Vee's not going to talk to me. You can pay him 10 grand. Well, you used to be able to pay him 10 grand to oh, talk to him. Absolute rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Not now. even close, yeah. right? And he's changed how he does his business. And I don't, I'm... People are saying I, he's he, falling off. I personally... I don't know. Do you know what I mean? He still has a massive media company behind him. But... He has the massive media company. He's doing something different. Yeah. Here's here's my take on this, and I don't have enough of the language to do a good job of explaining it. Yeah. He's living in a he's living in a different world than the rest of us oh, of right course. now. Of course. Of course. Right. He's in the crypto. He's in a he he's functioning on a different level. That it's just not accessible. And so this is what I mean though. The Gary V's, the Tony Robbins. They're great for um, inspiration. Yeah, zero to one. But you can't learn from them at this point mm. because the path they took to get to where they are no longer exists. Exactly. It doesn't exist anymore. The mm. way they got to where they are doesn't exist anymore. Doesn't negate what they teach, but things change, right? We know this technology changes faster, 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 yeah. exponentially faster. And so what they're, what they did to get to where they are is not even available. Yeah. It's just not there anymore. Well, Gary V, his dad owned a failing wine company. He made it a success, took some of that money, made his own business. Wait. Tony Robbins had a terrible upbringing. Wouldn't wish that on anybody. It made him want to change the world. He's also freakishly tall and got an interesting voice. <laughs> All these energy. things add up. The concepts are still there. Yeah. The concepts are still there. Yeah. Right. Use their rags to riches, use their work ethic. This right. Th the thing that they all have in common mm. is they did not sit back and wait for things to happen to them. Yeah. 
They did not. I mean, this is where the Instagram influencers are going to run into a problem. Yeah. The lies, the lack, the instant gratification that we have taught people is available. Mm -hmm. We've taught people the instant gratification works. It doesn't work. There's no way around doing the work. Yeah. There's no way around doing the work. Yeah. And it's work on yourself to, like you said, to oh, understand God. what it is you're it's best at. Work. And it, it takes, it doesn't take five months, six months, like the people online will tell you. It doesn't take this one course. It's ever changing. It's ongoing. You know, you were in a groove where you're like for 12 years, right. I'm in the right place doing the right thing. Then you looked up and you found this opportunity. It was like, I think I have to go do this. And it's being aware of what to say yes to versus what to say no to versus, you know, when to stay put and, you know, when it's time to, you know, take that leap, you know, there's, there's this. And knowing that half the time you're going to be wrong. Mm. Yeah. You're going, to, like, I think that's another big lesson that I've learned along the way. I don't actually expect things to work. Mm. I, most things don't work. Yeah. And I think that's something my marketing degree, right? The, having an MBA in marketing and having advertising classes, it's like a running joke, like, Half of it doesn't work. The problem is we don't know which half. Yeah, right? well, that's like, why you have A, B testing. You've got to say, okay, <laughs> let's try A. Okay, let's try B. Okay, parts of A work, parts of B work. On to the next experiment. And you Onto keep going next. forward like that. That's all it is. Mm. That's what everything is. And and so the education that I was lucky enough to have and and dove into taught me that everything in life is a testing ground. Mm. You make a decision based on the information you have. And if you're lucky enough, you've done enough work to not get too swayed by emotion, right? Because yeah. your gut is probably right, but your feelings will lie to you. Yeah. <laughs> your feelings will lie to you. We have good gut instincts that we don't listen to because our feelings are lying to us. And so we make a decision based on the information that we have and in front of us. But what happens is we consider that situation a success or a failure. Mm. And so if we consider it a failure, we go back to the, you know, we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we go back to the drawing board. Mm -hmm. That's not how this works. Yeah. How it works is you make a decision and you gather the data that came as a result of that decision. And you use that little bit of better information to make the next decision. Mm. It's a cycle. Yeah. It's not a stop and start. It's a cycle. Hmm. And my goal with myself, with my clients, is to put bumpers in the gutters so that I don't fall too far off either side. Hmm. Right? I don't get too far out over my skis where I can't control the situation and I'm like, this is bad. Or I'm not playing so small that I'm not moving forward. Yeah. Right? Bumpers in the gutters and we just bounce our way down. Yeah. Well, you, you knowing were, that we're not going to die. Yeah. And you were saying that you want to be part of the 1% and with that comes multiple streams of income, right? For some people, it might be their yeah. job, some investments, you know, things like properties, stocks, shares, whatever. But I feel like for you, it's maybe a couple businesses and then a, a few of the other yeah. kind of, you know, the more regular ones. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk me through, you've got your sure. franchise. I assume you still run. No, I do not. I got rid of that, sold that. It was, okay. I, so here's the thing. The universe doesn't like change. And every time I tried to change into this business, something happened with that business mm. and sucked me back in. So to your point though, and I loved how you phrase this because what you did not say is seven different things that have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. And this is marketing. Mm. If you are doing 17 different things, the, the marketplace doesn't understand you mm. and a confused mind always says no. Yeah. 
right? Confused mind always says no. They might smile and nod at you and think that you're cute and that you're friendly and that you're nice, but they're not going to buy from you because they don't think you're good enough at anything, right? So multiple streams of income, yes. You can actually build multiple streams of income within your business. Right, yeah. Different you services, different offerings. Different all services, the different... Uh, you can build a vertical, you can build a horizontal, right? We can have an ascension model. I'm in the process right now. We're launching it in the next couple of weeks of building my vertical. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm a business strategist and a business coach. And I now will have the build it for you implementation on the branding side of my business. Mm. So we're building our horizontal, right? What other problems do your clients have that you could solve? But we're not confusing the marketplace with it. To and... I could totally see buying another business mm. because for me, the puzzle is growing the business. Yeah. That's what I like doing. Um, if you're just starting out and you need your social media and you need your network to know that you still have your job while you're also doing your new thing, um, you could totally do that. But you want to be clear about it. So I had one client. This was so much fun. She had an IT consulting company. Mm -hmm older lady, but she also wrote a book and had a series of videos and things she was doing on mentoring women through menopause. Right. Yeah. So how the hell do you talk about that? <laughs> right? Yeah, the two Those don't two go things. together. They don't go together. We literally just said IT consultant by day, menopause guru by night, mm. because now you're so interesting that you're memorable. Mm. You can pull that off with two things. Yeah. You get past two. Now you're getting muddy. Yeah. Now yeah. you're getting muddy. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you kind of brought it all together there because some people think, right, okay, I need to have some crypto over there. I need to have some property over here. No. I have one business that does something completely different to another business. And it's like, if you actually look at some of the most you know, rich investors in the world that buy businesses, there's a theme there. They're buying yes. cash rich businesses that, you know, make products. Or if you look at things like the LVMH group, it's luxury goods. There's always a theme there. And even in your one business, like you said, you can branch out and do this and do that. As long as you're constantly having that backwards and forwards dialogue with your client and customer, there's always a price they're willing to pay to get that pain point away. Right. And if they're not, then they're not the right client for your business. Well, and look at, look at, look at Shark Tank. Hmm. Look at the people on Shark Tank. Yeah. You go listen to what they ask. Go listen to what they ask. Yeah. You're, you can get an MBA watching that TV show. Yeah. Listen to what they ask. They have themes. Mm. They have themes that they're good at. They also are careful to not sell. Right? You, you, can, you can start um, hurting your own sales mm -hmm. by having too much competition within your own framework. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What's the fine line between I know how to do this thing and to, I'm selling against myself? Yeah. Right? Like, where is the line? And if you look at their themes, mm. the themes that they pick is what do they know how to take to market? Yeah. What do they know how to take to market? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. And that's the thing with entrepreneurship. It's like you, you might be a person that can do the whole scaling, growing, whatever. You could also be a person that does good starting building a team and then kind of staying out of the way and taking a nice little dividend or residual, you mm -hmm. know, or you could just, again, be a good part of a big machine. There's no shame in finding your place. And it's very difficult to, you know, it's almost a, a form of humbling yourself because if you have got the entrepreneurial spirit, you're like, I can do it all. I can do everything. I don't need anybody else. I'm going to work myself to death. And it's like, realistically, 
the easier it gets is the more you let go of things and let trust people to do things for you. And this is where I laugh. And because especially one of the people I love, one of the types of people I love is working with people who come out of corporate. Because mm. there's two things that like a lot of things that we learn in corporate will just kill you as an entrepreneur. Mm. But there's a couple things that work really well. One is work ethic. They understand going to work in the morning and work. They understand work ethic, right? They do the work. Yeah. But the second thing they understand is delegating. Mm -hmm. And I laugh because when I was senior vice president of business development, which is basically what an entrepreneur is, yeah. right? If you're a business owner, that's your job. Yeah. Get the business. And when I had that role at the financial services company, if I would have one day walked into the web, the marketing office, the marketing department mm -hmm. and started messing with the website. Right. I would have been chased out with torches and pitchforks, yeah. right? And yet we watched small business owners spend a month and a half learning learning WordPress so they can make their own website. Like it's never going to be good. Just just no, understand oh God, it's, it's never going to be good. Just pay someone. What's the what's the value of your time? Let's say you put a small value on your time. Your time's worth $20 an hour. Okay. So if you're going to spend 5 months, 5 hours a day, do that math. Just go pay someone to do it. Just go pay somebody because don't spend a lot of time to do a really bad job at something that someone else can spend a short amount of time doing a good job doing. Yeah. I mean, you, you spoke about what you love about your clients, which is an amazing thing. But what I wonder for you, Erin, is what is it about what you do that brings you the most joy? Oh, my God. Aha moments for people when their light goes off and they see a different way of doing something, when they start to see what's possible. Right. When they um, I'll give you an example. I have a client. We did this recently. Great, great, great guy comes out of blue collar manufacturing um, is a got a bit has a business doing employee engagement for blue collar manufacturing companies then leadership and employee engagement training. That's that was his world. It came up from the bottom. Nice Midwestern love, love, love. Right. But what was happening was and everyone liked him, but he was going into his prospects with a list of 26 different uh, workshops that they could pick from. Mm. And so he was making some money, but not really good money. Plus, he was selling them at like twenty five hundred dollars a pop. So how much sales does that take to hit some good numbers? Right. This was a lot of work. And so we started working together and I'm like asking a million questions and. I said, you know what, what if, um, what are the three most important workshops? Like, what are the three that are most important? So he told me, I'm like, okay, great. Like, here's the thing, he knows how to do what he does. He's great at what he does. Mm. I said, okay, these are the three most important. Then he has this really cool um, online, like, app for accountability because these guys work on the floor. They don't leave to go to meetings and stuff, right? And so I'm like, okay. So here's what we do. We package up these three workshops that you said are so great with six to nine months of your app follow-up. And then he had this graph, this statistic, that for a $10 million or more company, the price of a disengaged employee is $25,000. The cost to the company for a disengaged employee is $25,000. I'm like, dude, it's from like the, la the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is a good, <laughs> like, this is a good graph to have. Mm. I said, there we go. There is your package. Mitig inst instead of just labeling yourself employee engagement trainer, what if we start talking about your business as mitigating the number one risk to your business, a disengaged employee? Yeah. 
and your year-long package that now actually serve your client. So this is not just better for him, this is much better for his client. Mm. Is the same price as solving one person's problem. And now he goes in as what I call a thought leader instead of a vendor. And he's selling $25,000 packages instead of $2,500 packages by doing better at his job. Mm except he needed to ju we just needed to rearrange the pieces for him yeah changed his life changed his clients businesses like how amazing is it to get to be able to help people like humbling and exciting and rewarding to get to be able to do that with somebody that's fine. Where can the people find you online? Where can people find We make this very easy for you. So the company is called Conquer Your Business. So everything you need is at conqueryourbusiness.com. That's how you reach me. That's how you find my socials. That's how you see my podcast. All of the things is just at conqueryourbusiness.com. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.